Good morning. The Old Testament reading this morning is from Jeremiah 31, 33 through 37. And you can find it on page 837 in, uh, in your pew Bible. Let me try that again. It's Jeremiah 31, 33 through 37. And you can find it on pages 837 and 838. Pray with me. Oh, Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word every day. We just ask that you prepare our hearts and our minds and our ears and our eyes to have, so that we might see and hear and know the message that you have for us in this beautiful passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, it's Jeremiah 31, 33 through 37. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, till the heavens above can be measured and the fountains of the earth below can be explored, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Please turn with me now to Galatians 4. It's going to be page 1238 in your pew Bible. You're going to look at Galatians 4. Uh, we're not going to read the whole passage this morning just for time's sake, uh, but we are going to talk about all of it. Um, but before we get there, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but uh, how many of you can remember your last argument? And think about... Oh, somebody is showing their hand, too. Uh, now, think about that argument. And then I want you to think about the part, and you might be in this part right now, that's all right. But I want you to think about the part where you knew something went wrong, but before you had any resolution, and you just don't know where you stand, where you, you know something's wrong between you and the other person, but you just don't know where you stand. And then, when you're right there in that moment, I want you to think and answer this question. What do you typically do next? How do you react to that feeling? Not knowing where you stand, not knowing what's going on between you and this other person, not knowing what went wrong. You don't know where you stand. How will you react? Well, if any of you were at the, the marriage conference last weekend, you know that um, God has designed us in a way that we are, we are wired for relationships. And more than that, we're wired for safe, good relationships. And a big part of that is knowing where we stand. And so our brains are, are wired 
to avoid that uncertainty, to avoid not knowing where we stand, as if it's pain, as if it's touching a, a hot stove. We actually want to avoid that feeling of, of uncertainty and not knowing where we stand. So a lot of us uh, tend to react in certain ways. It's usually subconscious. We don't really know why we're doing it, but we react in a certain way that can clear out that ambiguity. It might not solve the argument. It might not actually help the relationship at all, but I'm going to react so that at least I know where I stand. At least I can control that part of what's going on. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we can admit that we, we do this in our relationship with God too, don't we? And uh, it, it might be something that we've done. It might be something that, that's been done to us or said to us. It might be some situation that we're in. But for all of us, there comes a time, or maybe, maybe several times, where we reach a point and we just don't know where we stand with God. And that ambiguity and that uncertainty, if we let it drive us, if we let it control us, it'll cause us to react. And it might not be the healthiest thing, and it might not be the best thing, and it might not fix the relationship, but we do it because we think, if I do this, at least I can know where I stand. Well, the Galatians were in a similar situation as that. They were in a situation where they, they didn't know where they stood anymore. They didn't know where they stood with God. They had some people coming in telling them, you know, hey, look, you, you guys think you're okay, but are you? Are you really? And they started to question it. They started to question their relationship with God. And it left them wondering where they stood, and they started to react to try and get rid of that uncertainty. So let's read Galatians 4, 1 through 11. But before we do, let's pray. Father, this morning I pray that you would be with us. Let us hear your word. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts to make us more like you, to help us know your love. And in all these things, we pray that you would receive the glory. Amen. So Galatians 4, we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul, in this passage, he starts talking about this, this thing, these elementary principles, and he's saying that the Galatians at one point were enslaved to these elementary principles. They were, they were underneath them. Uh, but then, then they became free. But now their problem is they start trying to go back to these elementary principles and put themselves back under it. Well, we know from the context and what we remember from chapter 3 that 
these elementary principles uh, that Paul is talking about, it's, it's things that people try to rely on apart from grace. It's things that people try to rely on apart from grace. See, everyone has some kind of elementary principle, some kind of law in their hearts that makes them think, if I do this, then I can know where I stand with God. And so the Galatians are doing the same thing. After they'd already known Christ, instead of trusting in that work, they start going back to their own law, their own elementary principle to help them feel like they know where they stand. And we know what that's like, right? It seems easier to trust that our parents love us when we've done our chores. It seems easier to trust that our spouse loves us when we just took them on a great date and were brought home flowers that day. It seems easier to trust that our friends love us when we remember their birthday or got them something great for it. It always seems easier to trust in a relationship where we feel like we have that measure of control so that we know where we stand. And just like we do this in our relationship with other people, we try to do this in our relationship with God. We try and go back to things that make us feel like we have that measure of control so that at the end of the day, we can know where we stand with God. So we're going to look in this passage and we're going to look at how we try to control our relationship with God why it won't work, what God's plan is, and then what our response should be instead. How we control our relationship with God, why it won't work, what God's plan is, and how we should respond instead. So first, how do we try to control our relationship with God? Well, one thing we try to do, and this is, this is the Galatians' biggest problem, one thing we try to do is follow all the rules. I know someone who uh, shared with me about his marriage, and he was talking about how it had ended up in divorce. And he was telling me that he had always had one rule in his life, that if he worked hard enough, everything would turn out okay. And so as he and his wife encountered some issues in their marriage, and where he didn't know where he stood, he went back to this rule, if I work harder, everything will turn out all right. So he started working harder and harder and harder, and they started growing farther and farther apart. And what he realized too late is that by trying to earn what he wanted to have, he was destroying what he already had. See, he was following his rule, trying to earn her love, and all she wanted was for him to be her love. And the Galatians were doing the same thing with God. Look at verses 9 and 10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more. And then Paul mentions the rule that they started trying to follow. You observe days and months and seasons and years. They started trying to follow this law that had already served its purpose. This law that had already served its purpose as guiding them toward God, guiding them toward their need for a Savior. But they were going back to it and trying to do it again because they'd wanted to be sure of where they stood. And now some of us might be thinking that we never do this. We never try and follow all the rules so that we can earn God's love, so that we can know where we stand because I did these things. But let's ask ourselves, the last time you did something bad that you knew God wouldn't like, what was your response? Did you say that you were going to try harder? Did you decide that you were going to go out and, and do a bunch of good things 
Maybe you could balance that out a little bit. I know that I'm not the only one who does this. And neither is the person sitting next to you. We all do this kind of thing. The other way that we sometimes respond to control that relationship, to figure out where we stand, is we say, you know what? Forget about following all the rules. I'm going to break all the rules. To be so bad that I can be sure God doesn't love me. It's a way of saying, I will be so bad, I don't have any doubt. I can know where I stand because I am so bad. How could he love me? These are the people who turn everyone who speaks of grace into an enemy. And you can see it in the way that the Galatians are responding to Paul. In verses 13 through 16, he describes their relationship, and he's talking about it, and he's saying, once upon a time, I told you the truth, and we were friends. I told you about grace, and you believed me, but now I tell you the truth, and we're enemies. I tell you about grace, and you turn me away. If we're convinced that God might not love us, then we turn anyone who says he does into a liar. They must have an angle. They must have something up their sleeve. And then we begin to act out to show them that they're wrong, that God can't possibly love us. We try and break all the rules so that we know where we stand. God can't love me if I break all the rules. Well, another way that we try to control our relationship with God is to ignore God altogether. You give up. You shut down. You stop wrestling with the question, with the wonder of whether or not me and God are okay. Because if I ignore the question, I can ignore the answer, and I can ignore the thought that I might not be loved. And so we begin to numb ourselves with whatever we can find, working too much, drinking too much, Netflix, video games, drugs. We use whatever we can to stop feeling anything, especially the loneliness and the hurt that comes with that feeling of not knowing where you stand. Well, we don't see this one as clearly in the text, but it is implied just based on what we know about human behavior. And so these three things, these are some of the things that the, that the Galatians did. They tried to uh, figure out where they stood with God, to try and just get a little bit of control in that relationship by following the rules, by breaking the rules, or by ignoring God altogether. So what's wrong with that? Why won't it work? Well, the simple answer is we don't have the ability to control our relationship with God. We're not big enough. We're not strong enough. We're not powerful enough. We can't control our relationship with God. See, when we try, we'll find that we aren't worshiping God. We're worshiping something smaller, something that we've made. We've turned God into something that we think we can control, and it makes us small, and it makes our love small, and it makes our lives small trying to please, trying to reject, or trying to ignore this little God that we've created. And that's why Paul is saying in verse 9, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? He's saying, if you go back to that, you aren't worshiping God. He even says these things by their nature, they are not gods. He says, if you do that, you aren't living out the reality of God's love. Because God has a different plan. So when you read verses 4 through 6, what is God's plan? What do you see in verses 4 through 6? 
But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is God's plan. God's word is saying that God sent Jesus to redeem us so that he's giving the purpose, so that we might receive adoption. Jesus came to make us daughters and sons. You see, before Christ, the language Paul is using here is he's talking about, you know, the heirs under guardianship and all this thing, but then he says, but you weren't even heirs. You were slaves. And in that time, people became slaves, usually, to pay off a debt. Something that they they would work it off, work it off, and then they'd be free. But he's saying, you had a debt that was so big, you couldn't pay it off yourself. And so he sent his son to pay it off for us. He took us from being slaves to being children and to being heirs. And we didn't do a thing about it. The slave owns nothing. The heir owns everything. The slave has to earn his freedom. The heir gets his inheritance because he's part of the family. And God made this change in our lives when we didn't love him back. He looked at us, pitiful, broken, unable to save ourselves, unable even to love him. And he loved us. And he sent his own son to buy out our debt, to make us sons and daughters, to adopt us, and to make us part of his family. And now we need to remember, for some of us, family is a four-letter word. But God's family isn't. And God's adoption is different. Because people still mess up. Biological parents, forever parents, we still make mistakes, but God doesn't make mistakes. And being part of God's family isn't like being part of a human family. Because once you're in it, he's not going to kick you out. And some of us have parents who have left us. But God's not a parent like a human parent. Because God does not leave. He is a father the way fathers were meant to be. And he will never leave his children no matter how far they run. They can never run far enough that he isn't there full of love for his kids. And God loves us so much that he sent his own spirit into our hearts. That's what you see in verse 6. His own spirit into our hearts so that even when we don't feel it, even when we aren't good enough or we don't know what to say or do, his own spirit is in our hearts crying out, Abba, Daddy. It's the cry of a kid saying, pick me up, Daddy. We can trust a God like that. We can know where we stand with a God like that. We don't have to react these ways. We don't have to try and follow the rules to know where we stand or break them or ignore it altogether. We can know where we stand with a God like that. And it's not just the New Testament. Our passage in Jeremiah 31 is saying that God will love his kids until the sun and the moon and the stars stop shining. He will love his kids until the waves stop crashing onto the shore. He's saying he's going to love us forever. 
And he will never let us down because he loves people who aren't perfect. His love for us will never stop because he loves people, even people who are inconsistent and unfaithful like us. If you know God, or rather, if you are known by God, you will always be his special child. He will always be your father, not the kind of father that you promised you'd never be. He will always be the kind of father that every father should be, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter how many times you fall down, no matter how many times you ignore him, he still loves you. And when we are loved with that kind of love, we begin to act rightly because we are loved, not so that we will be loved, not so that we can find out where we stand, but because we know where we stand with God and we begin to love others with the same kind of love that he's showed us. So how do we become more assured of his love? How do we get this into our hearts that we know with our minds? When verse 19, Paul is talking about the Galatians and he calls them his little children. And he talks about being in anguish until Christ is formed in them again. He's not saying that they aren't in God's family. He's not saying any of that. He's saying they need to return to a place of assurance, a place of resting in God's grace. And we're the same way. When we reach that point where we're struggling with the truth of God's love, then we need to be renourished, and we need to hear again and again the simple gospel of grace. And so the first thing we have to do is we have to preach grace to ourselves. Martin Luther struggled with this throughout his entire life. He struggled with this issue of knowing where he stood with God. And he said, you have to train your conscience to believe that God approves of you. Fight it out with doubt. Gain assurance through the word of God. Say, I am all right with God. I have the Holy Ghost. Paul himself, who God inspired to write this letter to the Galatians, struggled with this. In Romans 7, he says, I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I want to do. And in the end, he cries out that he will lean on God's grace. And we have to do the same thing. We have to preach that grace to ourselves. When we question where we stand, in the middle of the struggle, we have to preach grace to ourselves. We have to remember the cross and allow God to draw us nearer. And the second thing we have to do is preach grace to each other and be part of a community of grace. You know, Paul, at the very end of this passage, he talks about how he wishes that he could be there with the Galatians because he knows that if he could talk to them face to face, he could treat them like the children that they are. He could change his tone. He knows that they need people in their midst who will hear somebody saying, you've got to get God's love by doing this or by doing this. If you want to know where you stand with God, make sure you get your tithe check in on time. Make sure you sow your seed. Make sure you're following your list. Make sure you, or, or if you want to know where you stand with God, just break all the rules, then you know. Paul is saying if there was somebody there who would stand up and say, no, it's grace, then he would be okay. And so I want us to hear someone else uh, a guy named Brennan Manning spent his whole life, he devoted his life to this simple message of grace. 
And I, wanna, I want us to hear what he has to say as he preaches grace to us. I would suggest from this, this moment, you let the focus of your inner life rest on one truth. The staggering, mind-blowing truth that God loves you just as you are and not as you should be because nobody in this church is as they should be. That God loves you, not the person next to you, not that God loves Billy Graham or Mother Teresa, not that God loves the church, the world, not that God loves in some vague way the whole human race, but the truth that God loves you in such a way that he'd rather die than be without you. Isn't it difficult to believe you're worth the death of anyone? Least of all the all-holy God. I'm sure it's crossed your mind. Since God alone made you, a little help from your parents, of course. God alone knows what response he's looking for from you and how many people's destinies depend on yours. So when you scorn yourself, put yourself down, say, yeah, but I'm a clod man. You know, like I'm a loser. I'm not one of those devout, intense, pious Christians. If you ever got to know the real me, you wouldn't want to know me. So much insincerity. Skepticism, cynicism, shallow faith, and the self-talk continues. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. Because I'll go to work. When you scorn yourself, then you scorn all those plans of his. All the dreams he was going to realize through you. All the joy he anticipated from you. And all the hope that he placed in you. Self-hatred is an indecent luxury. But no disciple of Jesus can afford because self-hatred subtly reestablishes me as the center of my focus and concern. And biblically, that's idolatry. In the 37 years since I first met Jesus of Nazareth in a little chapel on a wintry morning in February of 1956, and praying over this book with regularity, I am convinced that on Judgment Day, the Lord Jesus is going to ask each of us one question, and only one question. Did you believe that I love you? That I desired? That I waited for you day after day? That I longed to hear the sound of your voice? The real believers will, will answer, yes, Jesus. I believed in your love, and I tried to shape my life as a response to it. We can believe that God loves us. We can know where we stand with him because he died to be with us, to make us daughters and sons. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you did. Thank you that when we were enemies, you loved us. When we were slaves, you loved us. And you made us sons and daughters. Thank you that we can't earn it, that we can't turn you into something you're not. You are God. You are awesome. You are powerful. And you love us. You desire us and long to be with us. Pray that we would shape our lives in response to this and love others the way that you love us. For your sake, amen.